I'm green. Thank you. Green is good. Green is go. Hey, before we get into the message this morning, just a note on membership again. I shared with the elders a short video. I think it was two minutes long or so. That guy was just talking about the fact that church membership uh, as a term is not in the New Testament. And his point was, it was assumed. You didn't have to say that because it was assumed. And his point was this, that, there was, that membership really was about commitment. You know, for many of us today, uh, we choose churches like ice cream, you know, the scoop of the month or whatever. We go to church if we choose not to sleep in. We go to church if it suits us that day. We sit in the back, we take it all in, we hope that we hear something that blesses us, and we may or may not come back. Or it's the revolving door syndrome, we go to one church, we like it for a while, we switch partners, go through the revolving door and hit another one. That's absolutely the antithesis of what you'll see demonstrated in the New Testament. In fact, you cannot be an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ and live life that way, it's impossible. There's over 50 commandments that talk about one another, the way we treat one another. And friends, you cannot keep those if you're not committed to a local body of Christ. It's impossible. You can't do it. They're personal commandments. So when we talk about membership, I hope that's not off-putting. I hope it feels like it's that call to we are committed to each other in a local body of Christ. That if that's true for you at Lion and Lamb, we want you to be committed here. Some of you could come in on a given Sunday and say, checking it out, and I don't think this is the place God's called me to. And we would say, God bless you. But you need to find that place, that local expression where you niche yourself in. And you do that prayerfully, you do that in service, you do that in fellowship. You know, Sunday morning's the entry point to the life of the church. It's not the beginning and the end, it's the beginning. But then figuring out the ways God's called us to serve there and plugging in intentionally in fellowship, in home groups, men's groups, women's groups, that's what we're called to. So hopefully that's what's being communicated. That's where we want to go, okay? So with that, let me get into the message. So the Garden of Eden, you remember Genesis 1 through 3, we've got the creation account and God creates this perfect cosmos, the heavens and the earth. And, and in that perfect cosmos where everything is good and it's very good, he sets Adam and Eve, that first couple, your forebears, my forebears, right? Our original parents, <clears throat> the most perfect sweet spot of all, the Garden of Eden, right? And it's as if he gives them the keys to the family car, right? He gives them the keys of the, his kingdom because they're the, his regents overseeing this earth. And they're commissioned. They're going to rule over his creation. And, and as we're reading the narrative, we see point by point, And then that temptation account comes up, right? And the one thing, the only way that they can disobey, because there's only one prohibition, don't eat from that one tree, when they're tempted with that, they, I'm sure they have no idea what's hanging in the balance, do they? Life and death for every one of their billions of descendants. Do they have any concept? And the fall of creation itself into this system of death, do they know what's going on? I don't think so. But let me ask you this, did God know what was going on? Do you, you know, as we read the story, it's a narrative. We read it, we're going along in the story, and we're, we're seeing what happens point by point. But that's not true of God, is it? So, God knows all things. Do you know God never learns anything new? That'd be boring for us probably, wouldn't it? God cannot learn anything new, ever. He knows all things from all time. So, before He created this heaven and earth, 
before he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in this first creation, you know what he already had planned? A second creation. A new heaven and a new earth before this one was created. Before Adam and Eve drew breath, God already said they're going to fail. And that's okay because I have another plan. And I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth and sort of that garden enlarged in what's called the new Jerusalem. And righteousness will dwell there forever. And there's going to be a new Adam, a second Adam, the head of a new human race. And that second Adam, he's perfect. And all of those that come from him now spiritually, just like we're from our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, they'll all be like Christ, like their federal head. They'll all share his perfections. That was always God's plan. God wasn't in heaven fretting over what Adam and Eve did. He didn't have an emergency plan B in case things went wrong. God knows all things from all time. He already had a new heaven and earth in plan, in mind. He had a new second Adam. And he had Adam's descendants, the second Adam's descendants, already in mind before this first heaven and earth were created. When the Apostle Paul begins to tell the saints at Ephesus about what God's up to, we're going to be in in Ephesians, sorry. Ephesians 1, you can turn there if you want. Uh, In Ephesus, he is so jazzed about God's, not plan B, but God's original plan for a new heaven and new earth under Christ. You remember he would recite these letters primarily. Somebody else is writing them down. I can see him taking one long breath because Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in the Bible. It's broken up in our English translations, but it's one sentence in the Greek. He is so jazzed that it's as if he's got to get all this out in one breath. And he's talking about where God is taking us in his plan to redeem all things under Christ and his headship. So we're in the second message in the series through Ephesians called Christ over all. We're going to see a little bit more fully again this morning what God's up to. Let me give you a couple caveats too before we get started. These are important. My primary goal this morning for me personally is to glorify God by speaking truth as I understand God has revealed it in the scriptures. That's my number one priority. Now, I may offend some of you as I do, as I try and glorify God. So I'm saying as well, this is a passage we're in this morning that should raise our ability to praise God because we see his faithfulness, his grace, his blessing, his benevolence. But it is, frankly, a contentious passage also because it brings in language and a concept that tends to be divisive. And we'll get there in just a little minute. So as we're going along this morning, you might say, I'm confused. I'd be glad to talk to you. You might say, Mike, you're wrong. Or I might say, no, you're wrong. And if we do so, let's do so in in Christian patience and love, okay, and And my hope at the end of all of this, really, because you'll see this in the passage, we are meant to see God's goodness and grace through this passage. We are meant to see God's greatness of grace poured out on us in such a way that when we come through a passage like this, we are meant to praise and glorify God in new, exalted, lofty ways because we see more of what he is like. So that's my hope. Also, last point. Um, We're hitting the high points only. Somebody asked me, uh, how many messages do you have through Ephesians? I said 12. 
He said, well, you could do 12 lessons on the first chapter. I'm like, I know, but I'm not. So we're hitting the high points only. There's lots we won't be able to develop, okay? But glad to visit with you about any of this. We're in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read from the ESV. If you use a pew Bible, that's the ESV too. And that's page 976. You can start there. So it's a whole lot of stuff. And we'll start in the text and then work our way through there. So Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This one verse, verse 3, we could spend a week on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Anyway, every way you and I can be blessed with Christ, we are. We don't have it in our hands, possessed now, but it's ours in Christ. Verse 4, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Guys, many of us have a deficient theology, theology proper. When we say theology, we're talking about things that are true specifically about God. Theology broadly, we talk about biblical concepts and and biblical philosophy, but theology proper is about God. Many of us don't really recognize God in the way God describes himself. So for some of us, God is fretting in heaven, wondering what you and I are going to choose to do with our lives. Or that God is reactive to what mere mortals on earth choose to do and and he sort of adjusts his plan as things goes along because, because he's learning like you and I learn. That he's not timeless. He doesn't know all things from eternity past. He's still fretting and figuring things out along the way. And What you see in a passage like this is that's simply not the case at all. We study God generally from the Bible. You say God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He never learns anything. He knows it. He knows everything you and I will ever do. Think, say. He knows everything that's going to happen in the universe. God is firmly in control. This passage tells us because he's ultimately working all things towards his own purposes. 
So God is firmly in control. You know, we see things happen, things that we don't like, things that are not God's primary will. Uh, All kinds of things, right? Elections, warfare, refugees, harm to people, all of that. And, And it seems like if there's a God, some people will say, He's either not all-powerful or He's not all-good. And God says, no, I'm both. I'm causing and allowing all things at the end of the day to work together for my eternal purposes. So God is firmly in control. And we said in our introduction a few weeks ago on January 1st, in verses 9-11, through you see this in spades, that the end to which all things are leading, God says, is He is reuniting all things to himself, God the Father, under the lordship or the headship of Jesus Christ. That's the eternal purpose that God is accomplishing. And you see that in verse 11. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? God is working all things after the counsel of his own will. And by the way, look back, if you will, in your your verses there for just a minute. Five times, listen to the language here in verse 5. The purpose of his will in verse 9, his will, his purpose in verse 10, his plan. Verse 11, his purpose who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Whatever goes through our mind when we feel like the world is out of out of balance or our life is confused or muddy and we're not sure what's up or down. Guys, God is firmly in control. And for Christians, that should be something that gives us great confidence, even if we don't know what's going on. God knows what's going on. He loves us and all things are still serving his purposes. If you look at passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation, the whole book, but specifically Revelation 19, you'll see big picture stories or narratives about the end of which all things are leading. Christ heading up all things. Christ becoming, in fact, on this earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's where everything is going. Now, Paul also says that the God who's in control of populating the new heaven and earth is going to do so through Jesus, and he used very specific language to this. And this is where we get into the things that challenge many of us. Look at verse 4. This says, God chose us in Christ. Remember, he's speaking to the saints, the Christians in Ephesus. Verse 5 says, God predestined us for adoption. Verse 11 says God predestined us to an inheritance. And by the way, on your study sheet, there's transliterated versions of the words chose or chosen and predestined with their definitions. God says that in his plan of redemption and reordering the universe after his goodwill, he's not leaving anything to chance. He's not leaving anything to fickle human wills. Think about that first creation and the temptation of Adam and Eve. But he is, in fact, ordaining not only his choice of king, think of Psalm 2, in the Lord Jesus, but also the subjects of the king's coming kingdom. God is ordaining. You can see similar language in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Now, it's this language about God choosing and predestining that sounds to some of us confusing. In fact, for some of us, it's an assault to our sense of reason and justice. And it was certainly that for me, when I was presented with this concept as a new Christian about 35 years ago. Some of us, perhaps right now, are squirming, wondering where the caveat is that God is choosing or predestining some to adoption, to life, but not necessarily all. 
We're saying, okay, where's the but? Where's the thing that says I chose God, not God chose me? Uh, Where's my sense of comfort in that? Right. Most of us, we're coming from a culture in which we breathe the air of independence. We're the, the captains of our fate. We're the masters of our soul. You know, we're Americans. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we say, where's that language in there? And friends, it's not in there. You look for it, but it's not there. So I can't comfort you along those levels. I can't say the text means something that it doesn't. When we talk about these words, election, God choosing, God predestining, we're talking about a concept, right? A doctrine. If you've read a little bit, if you've had conversations, you're aware of this. So the doctrine of election, you know what? It's a very divisive doctrine, isn't it? Or, or if you've studied historic theology, someone says to you, are you a Calvinist? Or are you an Arminian? Does God choose or do you choose? This is a minefield on one hand. And on this doctrine, I'm actually not able to develop it or defend it today or explain it uh, more fully than the text is because my focus really wants to be in the text. But I understand, that's why I say, a very emotional concept for lots of us. Something some of us may not be aware of. Others of us are confused by. Others of us are fine with. But that's where we're at this morning. And so I would say, if I say something that you think I'm out of line, out of balance, let me know. Be glad to hear it. Be glad to interact with you. If you're confused, I'd be glad to clarify where I'm able. But this is, a, this is the meaty and the difficult thing that we talk about in this passage this morning. Um, the passage, some people will tell you, um, and I do my best, by the way, before I teach, I read the best commentaries I can. You know, I study the text, I make my own notes, and I get the best guys I know, and then I check their notes. I don't want to miss something that I should see, right? Some people will tell you that this text means something like this. God chose those he knew would choose him. God predestined those who were destined to choose him, to believe in him, uh, because he knew that from eternity past. And to that offering, I would simply say, I believe it does violence to the text. I don't think at all that's what the text says, and I don't think that's at all what the text means. And this is one of the challenges that was certainly true for me, maybe true for you today. And this, this happens not only in this passage, but certainly in other passages as well. If I come to a text and I read it, and it seems to say something clearly, that I say to myself, it cannot mean that, then I need to stop. And I need to question my own presuppositions. Uh, there are texts in the New Testament that I've read very bright people on. And they'll say, this means the opposite of what this text appears to clearly say. And I say to myself, for all their intelligence, they do not recognize the very lenses by which they are interpreting this text. Because they're coming to the text with their own reasoning, their own thoughts, their own philosophy, and they're saying it cannot mean what it appears to say. It must mean something different. So when, you, when that happens to you, or when you read somebody else on a text, be careful and just slow down. And you, we can do this, right? All of us can do this. Lord, would you by your spirit help me understand from your word what this means? And what this means for me. And how I take this in. And what I do with it. And how I communicate it about it to others. 
So we need to be skeptical of ourselves and of others who say a text does not mean what it otherwise appears to clearly say. So for us, the whole notion of God choosing us, it's foreign. It's foreign to us from the outset. This was not true for the Apostle Paul. The guy God chose that the Holy Spirit was working through to write this letter, guys, he came from a chosen, a predestined nation. Now think about this for a minute. Some people are okay with God choosing a prophet or Abraham. They say, hey, that's okay, God could choose that. But, but understand where that leads, right? When God chose Abraham, he didn't choose others, did he? When God chose Israel, who was it that got God's word and the knowledge of salvation? It wasn't the rest of the Gentile worlds. It was Israel. It wasn't everyone. This brings up the whole concept of justice. And by the way, we did a series last fall called Foundations. One of the messages on there is God's justice in judgment. Um, most of our thinking on what's called election or predestination starts midstream, and that's the problem. You've got to go back to the beginning. That message from last fall on justice or judgment, I'd commend to you because it talks about that whole concept. You've got to start there before you get into the language of election. But remember... Paul, writing this letter, knows I'm a member of a chosen nation. I'm a descendant of a chosen patriarch, Abraham. I'm a descendant of the chosen son, Isaac. I'm the descendant of the chosen son, Jacob. Paul knew the Old Testament. God had chosen one brother over another in his plans for redemption. It was God that chose kings and nations to raise one up and to put one down. This is all, by the way, this is all election. This is all God choosing. This is all God sovereignly ordaining what He wants to happen. He makes no apologies by this, for this, by the way. You read passages like Daniel, Job, Isaiah. This is, the, this is His language. It was God that chose David from among all His brothers and said, you're my king and your sons will be my king. And from you will come the Messiah, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Think of this too. It was God who chose the Old Testament prophets. You remember who the last Old Testament prophet was? John the Baptist, right? When did God choose John the Baptist to be his, his uh, prophet to introduce the Messiah? Did, did God sit down with John and say, hey, I have a contract. I'd like you to read this over, sign it, get back to me because I'd like you to be my man. Is, is that the way that worked? Nope. When did God choose John before he was born? He told his dad, you're going to have a son. You're too old to have a son, but you're going to have a son. I'm going to give him to you. And he is my man. John was chosen before he was born. That's God sovereignly at work. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, I want to say I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. Have I lost everybody or are we OK? Are we calm? OK, so I want to come back to this. This concept in a minute, but but please hear this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, sometimes you say there's more smoke than fire. There's a lot of smoke around this concept, a lot. When you read the language of election, you need to hear this. You need to hear that God is bringing people in, not keeping people out. You need to understand that God is demonstrating his grace and his mercy in election, he is not demonstrating his judgment. That in election, in God choosing, in God predestining, God is making his enemies, his friends, and his children. 
Our mistake is to say election or God's sovereign choosing is unjust, it's unfair, it's keeping people out. The opposite is true. In election, God is making sure that some come in. So at the end of the day, when we think about this concept or passages like this, and by the way, this is certainly not the only one, though it's one of the clear ones, we need to remember this is all the language of God's love, of His grace, of His inclusion, of His making His enemies into His friends. Now, God has specific things in mind in this choosing, in this plan of redemption. And one of the first things is this. Look at verse 4. God, the Father, chose us in Him in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God's plan in redemption is to make believers holy and blameless before a God who knows all things as they really are. And guys, ultimately what this really means is, and you see this in Romans 8, God's plan for His adoptive children is to make them just like Jesus. Even for Christians, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, clear that even Christians think of the term holy because of the culture we live in. It's kind of this narrow-minded, constricted view of life. I don't do all these things. I, I lack joy. I lack peace. That's what holiness looks like. No, no, no. Remember, God's the most emotional person in the universe. He experiences emotional fully to know Christ, to be like Christ, to have the ability to experience joy at the ultimate highest level possible or peace or anything else. So God's plan for us is to make us holy just like Jesus. That's what's going on. Now, you got the same language in chapter five when he talks about the church holy and without blemish. So God's plan is to perfect us. It's to make us just like Christ. This is not going to happen to the full extent that it will while you and I inhabit these bodies, these mortal bodies of sin and death. This primarily happens at the resurrection, but that's where we're heading. And so if we know that, that's God's purpose for us. That's the mindset we should bring into our day-to-day living. It's to be holy, not because that makes us a narrow-minded Christian, but because it liberates us to be more like Christ himself. That's God's goal. We will be like Christ fully in the resurrection. That's the direction we're heading. You look at verse 5 too. He predestined us for adoption as sons. This is a big concept. This adoption as sons. This has a couple key points. And you've got a quote I think on your study sheet by Harold Honer. I'll let you read later. But Paul is speaking in a Roman culture in which adoption had a very particular uh, understanding. An adult person could be adopted by another adult. And that adult who was adopted, his dad might still be alive. But his relationship with that initial father was severed. This comes up again in chapter 2, by the way. But it meant that all the rights and privileges of the person who adopted are now his adopted heirs. So for us, when God tells us that part of what he's after in redemption is to make us his sons, he's saying two things. God, who's made his enemies his friends by making us his children, is now free to lavish on us His paternal fatherly love. Remember that before we're enemies of Christ, we're enemies of God. But now because we've been brought near, God is free to lavish His fatherly love on us as His children. The other thing is this. Because we're now His children, we are God the Father's heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now, this is mind-blowing. 
So we say things like, my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I say, that's chump change. Right? Your father, as a Christian, your father owns the heavens and the earth, the universe. As Christ's co-heir, what do you possess? Everything. God is now free to share all that he has with us. Do you remember in John's gospel, Jesus says all that the father has is mine. Well, guess what we can say? All that the Son has is ours because we are now co-heirs with Christ. We will rule and reign with King Jesus forever. That's part of what God's accomplishing in our adoption. And last, and I love this, uh, verse 6. This is a repeating theme in this passage. Verse 6, God says He's operating to the praise of His glory. Verse 12 says, he's operating to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 says, God's operating to the praise of his glory. That's interesting. Three times in one passage, God says that all that he's doing is to the praise of his glory. That everything God's accomplishing in redemption, in the first heaven and earth, the second heaven and earth, God says it all ends up to the praise of his glory. That God is putting on display, both in creation and redemption, the perfections of His own excellencies and character and will. When you and I read this kind of language, we are meant to fall on our face and glorify God because we see how perfect He is. How perfect in His justice. How perfect in His kindness. How overflowing in His grace. God is demonstrating His own perfections to His own praise and His own glory. And if a perfect God displays His perfections, that's a good thing. And that's what God says He's up to. And you and I have a future in Christ in which we see God as He really is. And we get to praise Him forever. You know, some guys, I talked to a painter on a construction job one time long ago, and we were talking about heaven and the gospel, and, and uh, he liked to listen to TV preachers. And uh, I said something, well, you know, when you die, are you going to heaven? And he goes, he says, nah. He says, you know, I never liked organ music. <laughs> I kid you not. I kid you not. His, his vision of, of heaven is, is cheesy, churchy organ music like wow I wouldn't want to go there either but that's that's not where we're going that's not what lies ahead of you you're going to see that you know if you drive up and you see the rocky mountains covered in snow or you see something that sort of takes your breath away and you go wow well that kind of wow that's your future and mine forever as God reveals more and more of his perfections and his glories So right now, we are to understand God's revealing more of Himself in all of this. And it ends up resounding to His praise and His glory. So that's why I say, however you come to grips with a passage like this, it should incite our hearts to praise. It should lift our appreciation for the perfections of God and especially for His grace. In our redemption, I think this is on your study sheet, the we see the breadth of God's goodness and His determination to bless us in every lofty way possible with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's verse 3. We see the depth of God's loyal love loving us 
ransoming us while we were yet sinners and His enemies. We see the perfection of God's justice. Remember, God hasn't adopted us by merely saying, I won't hold your sins against you. God has perfectly met His own standard of justice and righteousness in paying for our sins, our ransom in Jesus' death on the cross. We see the perfection of God's justice. We see the constancy of God's kindness, not only saving us, but if you're like me, seeing that God bears with me every day in spite of all that I still am. God's patience, His kindness. And we see the greatness of His grace in all of His work of redemption. Through most of this message, we keep talking about uh, what Jesus has done for us. And so God is honoring His Son in this for sure. God's going to head up the new heavens and new earth under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But what you also probably noticed, you have the work of the Trinity in this whole process of redemption. And you see that throughout Ephesians. So if you just skip back uh, quickly, we won't spend a lot of time in this, but I do want you to see it. The Trinity has one mind and one will. But what you see is the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, tend to operate in different ways. They accomplish the same thing, the same will, but they do so by sort of parceling elements of that out. They're all together in one hand, but you see God attributing to Himself and the members of the Trinity different aspects of redemption. So if you look at this in verses uh, verses 3 through 5, we say the Father blessed us, the Father chose us, the Father predestined us. In other words, God says of the Father, the Father is the one initiating the will of the Godhead. He's the one setting it all in motion. The Father is the one who sent the Son. That's the language of the Gospels. The Father sent the Son. The Father is initiating everything that's going on. That's the role of the Father. And then later it's the Father with the Son who will send the Holy Spirit. If you look at verses like 7, 10, and 11 related to Jesus, the Son... The Son obtained redemption. He becomes our new head and leader. He gains our inheritance. So among the members of the Trinity, it's not the Father and it's not the Spirit that becomes incarnate, that takes on our humanity. That's the role of the Son. And so Jesus is born as one of us, lives a perfect life, offers Himself freely to the Father as the propitiation, the redemptive price to cover your sins and mine. That's the role of the Son, the Son incarnate. And then with the Father, of course, the Son sends the Spirit. If you look at verses 13 through 14, the Spirit sealed us as God's possession. The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. God has set His seal on us. This is a concept we don't, uh, doesn't come readily to mind. Paul's writing to Romans who use seals all the time. In fact, archaeologists pull up these uh, um, seals routinely. Some of them are round, some of them are flat and stamped. But the seal was the sign of ownership or authority. You'd seal your letter in hot wax. But the seal represented the owner or the person, the owner of the seal. So God says here, so the Father initiates it all, sends the Son. The Son comes, pays for our sins, and the Spirit comes behind and He stamps or He seals. He puts God's seal on those new believers. And this is important. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He is omnipotent. If the Holy Spirit seals you and says, you are mine, what power on heaven and earth can remove you from God's possession? None. Same messages in John 10. 
No one can take you out of the hand of the Son or out of the hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit seals us and He says, you're mine. You're mine. That's His role. He guarantees our inheritance. So, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. So let me ask you, at the end of the day, with all this that God is doing, God is choosing, what's left for you and me? What's our role in this whole process? Is there a role? I think there is. Look at verse 13. Paul says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What do we do? We believe. This is the beauty to me. Do you know how a Calvinist and an Arminian preach the gospel? Same way. Do you know people who believe God chooses us or we choose God? Do you know how they communicate the gospel? Same way. Because the gospel is the same, right? Do you know wherever the gospel is preached, think of Paul in Acts 17, Paul says God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent of your life of independence from God, your rebellion, and accept the forgiveness He freely offers you in Christ. Guys, when you proclaim the gospel, do you talk about uh, guys figure out you're chosen or you're not? It's not the gospel. I mean, that's not the message that we proclaim to the world, is it? What's incumbent on men and women, boys and girls, when we hear the gospel is to believe it. To accept it. That's the call. Believe the gospel. Paul talks about the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5. The obedience to God that is faith. So when we're sharing the gospel with others, we're telling them the same thing that Paul said and Peter said and James said. We're saying repent and believe. Repent of your independence. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. That He's covered your sins and He gives you eternal life. That's what we do. We, we don't tell people to figure out the will of the Godhead. We say believe. We say repent. That's the deal. It's simple. You know, a child can understand the gospel, right? A child can understand the gospel. Whether we ever comprehend the relationship of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and redemption, all of us can understand the gospel and all of us are commanded to humbly submit ourselves to God's will through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If today you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, then guys, every day is a day to give thanks, right? My goodness, right? The more you see your own sin, do you guys do this? I do this all the time. Lord, I'm so glad you saved me. And, I, and, and God who knows all things knows every dirty, rotten thing I'd, thing I'd ever think, say, do, not do. And I think the older I get, it's like it's a marvel and a marvel and a marvel that God saved me anyway. He knew me and he saved me anyway. If you're saved, if Jesus is your Savior and you know you're going to heaven, we've got reason to thank God every day. God, thanks for saving us. If you haven't yet come to faith in Jesus, if you don't know if you died today, God would say, you're my child. Come home, son. Or come home, daughter. It's as simple as believing. Right? We just say, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I own Jesus as your son. And he paid for my sins. And I simply accept what you've offered me in Christ. That's the call. When you do that, if you do that, you join the children of God through the ages. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing possible. 
You're loved by the Father forever. You can't get more love than that. You reign with Jesus forever. And you delight in the joys of the Holy Spirit forever. That's a deal. That's a deal. Father, we humbly submit ourselves to you. We acknowledge that you're God and we're not. We acknowledge that we have been fallen. That we have been rebels against your name and your cause. Lord, we admit that Jesus is your son, your appointed savior. We revel in his love, in his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. We own him, Lord, as our savior. We bow before him and before you in humble obedience. Lord, we look forward to you coming again and to submitting all things to the counsels of your purpose and will. And say again with the saints of the ages, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.